We're continuing our series, Keep Hope In. We're not just hoping for something to happen. Our hope is in Christ, and we're talking about what that would look like. And today's topic is, is there hope for me? I mean, is there hope for me? Um, I had the uh, wonderful privilege a few weeks ago. Uh, There is a game that my children, as they were growing up, when they were little, they loved to play. And, uh, and I had the, the wonderful joy and privilege of teaching the game to uh, my four-year-old grandson, Hudson, just a few weeks ago. And it's called the motorcycle game. Uh, game. Uh, and, and here's how it works. I, uh, I, you know, I lay on the carpet on my back, and I pull my knees up to form the motorcycle seat, if you will. And then I thrust my arms up in the air like this. Can you see that? you know what I'm saying, to make the handlebars, and Hudson climbs on, he steps on my tummy and gets up on the motorcycle seat. And I had to explain to him about four times that we had an electric start and we didn't have to stomp on <clears throat> to start the motorcycle. At least four times. Now, my son Jim, who was in the room watching Granddad, um, uh, added a new twist to the game. He informed Hudson that he had to put on his motorcycle helmet. And so before Hudson could get on the motorcycle, he had to put on his helmet and then he would climb on. And the way the game works is, is he grabs this thumb over here and starts the motorcycle. And I, it comes complete with sounds. I do mostly Harley Davidson. All right, got it. And then as he presses each of the fingers, he goes through the gears each one taking that motorcycle faster, you know, you got it? Now, if he, gets, if he hits the little finger, he's in trouble because that's when the motorcycle is invariably going to go out of control and start to swerve, I'm just saying, because he's actually, he's going too fast. And I usually try to warn him in the midst of making the sounds, don't go, you're going too fast, you know, that kind of thing. And, and what eventually happens is, you know, as the, the seat opens up, he drops down, and then we roll around on the carpet, and, and he is just laughing his head off, you know. And, and, uh, and then usually, granddad, the motorcycle, ends up on top of him, you know what I'm saying? And that's after I make all those exploding noises, like, you know, because the gas tank has to explode. And, and then I end up on top of him, and then he has to, he has to get his feet up under and push his granddad off. And see, the whole point of this, the game is to lose control and to crash and burn. It's the whole point. And we did it for like a solid hour, hour and a half. Again and again and again. And see, there's some of you in this room. And here's what you're thinking. You know, I have crashed and burned so many times in this thing called Christian, the Christian life. I have crashed so many times just in general in my life. Is there really any hope for me? And, and here's what I'd say to you. The only thing that gives me any credentials to stand up here and talk about hope is the fact that I have crashed and burned so many times in my life. And that I have given up the illusion of being in control. That I have found grace 
and that in him I have actually found a hope that is unperishable, unfading. I mean, it's... And if you think about it, if you think about the man who is writing this letter of 1 Peter that, we will, that we'll get back into this morning, what is it you know about Peter? Scripture records for us and preserves for us the fact that Peter was a guy that crashed and burned over and over again. He was seriously flawed, wasn't he? And yet he learned to surrender. He gave up the illusion of being in control. And God did some incredible things, you know, to turn him into a rock. But it was not without a lot of hard life lessons, crashing and burning. He crashed and burned three times on the night Jesus was betrayed, didn't he? And so we come to the text today, chapter 1, verse 13 of 1 Peter, if you would turn there with me. We just want, I want to read just the first few phrases because we're going to have to do a bit of backtracking. Listen to what Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've been around me long enough to know that when there's a therefore, we always have to stop right and ask what it's there for. Because, you know, because Peter is then launching himself off of something he has just said previously. And so the, verse 13 marks a shift. There's a big shift. Now, what I would want you to know is that all of the verbs in verses 1 through 12 leading up to 13 are all in the indicative voice and mood, which indicates that these are, that, that Peter is simply stating facts up to verse 12. What's already been accomplished, and not by us, but by the Father who, he, who deserves all the credit. We just read that. You know, here's the, that key verse. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that, that, you know, that there's an exclamation point in the English Standard Version because it's appropriate. All of the verbs are indicative voice, indicative mood, which means it sets up praise and honor and glory because it's all accomplished by Him. You were born again, not because you had the wherewithal to pull that off. But in the verses we saw last week, the new birth is a necessity because you have no hope for anything eternal without new birth. You have no inheritance. There, there will be, it's all temporary. And it will fade away and it will go away. And you know that. But because Peter says you have been born anew, there are some things available to you. They're, they're, the nature of this hope that we have, he, he mentions three things. One of them is, is that you know your future is secure, right? And you know that you have, you have everything you need you know, to, 
you have the hope in, in that hope, everything you need to face the trials in the present day that you're experiencing. And in the new birth, you know that you know him. You now have personal relationship with him, love relationship with him. And so he ends the introductory verses Verse 9 is an important verse because he says, he said, like at the end of verse 8, he says, now, and now we are rejoicing and we are full of joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your souls. Now, I put the Greek there for you so you can see it. It's soterion sukon. Suke is the word for the soul. Now, you need to reflect for a minute. Some of us have been taught in, in, you know, a fallacy you know, in, in the past. We've been taught that, that, we are, you know, that we possess a little part of us that's called the soul, and that when we die, the soul you know, leaves our body and kind of goes up to heaven. You know what I'm saying? The, 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 scriptural, the scriptural definition of the soul is that is our life. That's the real us. That's the, the person God created us to be. We are living souls. That's all of us. And so, so Peter is saying here, here's the object of all that God has done. Here is the goal of our faith, the salvation of our soul. Our lives, our lives in totality, if you will. So we need to think about that for a minute. Because we, we might begin to think, well, well you know, uh, that just, that salvation, that just, that just frees me from the penalty. I'm forgiven, so that means I get to go to heaven when I die, right? There's a lot more in there that Peter's thinking about than that. You know, that salvation, salvation has three parts, and they're big words. They're, they're big religious terms, and I almost hate to use them, you know, but, but, but the first one is justification. Justification, because of the saving work of Christ on a cross, because he took all of our sins upon himself and suffered the penalty of all of our sins, we are made justified. We are made righteous in him. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness is given or laid upon us. And God will always see us through the cross as made righteous, made just, justification. But there are two other parts of salvation. One of them, the next one's sanctification. Being, being made holy. Being set apart. That's the growing up part of growing in our faith while we're down here. And then the last part is glorification. That's when we finally see him, Right? You know what I'm saying? When he comes for his own and we see him and we will be like him and we will share in his 
glory. He will, we will be glorified because we will, we will be overshadowed and we will share in his glory. So salvation is, is, a, is, is, is something that does happen, yes, at a point in time when we put our faith and trust in Christ, then we are justified, but it's just the beginning of a process because, because God intends... See, God, as the Father, likes to see his children grow up. Hey, parents in here, you like to see your children grow up? I mean, can, can you imagine having your children in diapers for 35 or 40 years? Right? We got new, new parents sitting right over here and new parents sitting right there. And, you know, you'll change a lot of diapers. You'll clean up a lot of messes. But you want them to grow up, don't you? And, and Paul catches this same theme in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, he, says, he, says, he says to the Philippian church, work out, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, you've, the saving work of Christ is once and for all. Yeah, but you've got, it's got to be worked out in your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says in verse 13, for God is at work in you. You're not in this alone. God is at work in you. He's placed the Spirit of God. He's placed His own Spirit in you to will and to do that which begins to please Him, which brings Him pleasure. But there, there's a sense in which what Peter is saying is that there's a cooperation that's needed. We have to cooperate with God in that process, in what He's doing in our lives. And so when we come to this text, you know, we, we have to think about what does it mean, the salvation of our souls? Now, here's what I think Peter's thinking about. I went back and, and tried to look at, at where you see that phrase, that use, that, that idea of the soul used. And, and as we've talked about before, we've been in the Mark series before we started this one, is that, that Mark's gospel was written from the preaching of who? Peter. Mark, I mean, Mark traveled with Peter and he wrote down the things that Peter preached and that Peter talked about in his gospel so that we have a view of, of the authentic life of Jesus. And, and, and when you get in Mark chapter 8, keep in mind, this is probably coming from Peter's very thought in, into Mark, pouring into Mark. Listen to what it says. It says, it says, beginning with verse 31, chapter 8, And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of men. That's called crash and burn. Just one instance. And calling that a crowd to him and his disciples, listen, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life, suke, his soul in the Greek, whoever would save his life, his soul, will lose it. Whoever loses his life, his suke, for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul, his suke? For what can a man give in return for his soul, his suke? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I think he's pointing to the resurrection in a short time. Starts out talking about crucifixion and resurrection, comes back to it at the end. But in between, he says, he says, you won't save your life, lose it. If any man would become my follower, he must deny himself. And take up his cross. And follow me. That's, the, that's, not, that's not the language of, hey, I just get to go to heaven when I die, right? You getting that? That's the language of discipleship. Discipleship. And so when Peter makes the turn here in this gospel, you know, verse 9 launches, his, launches us into the next section here, beginning with verse 13. And, 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 and what, here's what happened. The, and, and I borrowed this phrase from Tullian Trevigian. Gosh, several years ago when we were studying Colossians, you know, the, the, the vertical indicatives, the vertical indicatives, you know, in verses 1 through 12, and now have given way to the horizontal imperatives. And there are five horizontal imperatives that are found in these next 10 or 11 or 12 verses. Now, there are a lot of other participial phrases, adjectives, and adverbs, but for the sake of structure to help you see how, how God the Father wants you to build your life in Him, how He wants you to grow in relationship with Him, then let's just, I want you just to, to look at these five horizontal imperatives, okay? Put them up there. Oh, man, I thought we were going to do animation today. Well, dang it, that must have been from last week. Okay, here you go. Here's the five. All right, if you got your Bible today, if you have a Bible. Now, if you've got a smartphone app, okay, you can still do this. On a smartphone app, you've got the U version, which is a really good one. You can, you know, you can press on each of those phrases. Set your hope, press on it, and, and, and then you can, you know, you can, instead of copying it, just mark it with a yellow, you know, with a yellow color or something. You, so that these leap out at you, these five imperatives sort of leap out at you. If you have your Bible, circle or underline. Do something so that, you know, when you read this text, those five leap out at you. Because we're going to read it in a minute. We're going to read it in a minute. But I want you to see, I want you to see the, other, uh, the other adverbs, adjectives, and, and uh, 
participial phrases and those things which help to give depth of meaning and, and you know, and, and, uh, and, and some instruction along with, I mean, it, you know, it, because there's some things that are happening as you go. And so, but there are five of these imperatives and we do not have time to go into depth about them today because we got something really important happening out here in just a little bit. So I'm going to preach a little shorter today so we can go out there and watch some people actually, actually act out a sermon, <laughs> you know, and we're going to see a sermon outside you know, we have a swimming pool set up there so we can, right here on the spot today, we can baptize some folks. And so right after the service, we're asking you to just to walk through those doors, get out of here somehow and, and join us right out there. And let's see, let's see the change and the transformation that God does in a life, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a dramatic and acted out kind of way, it's symbolic way today. I'm saying, so, so here you go. You got these five imperatives identified. Set your hope fully on what? On grace. That's a great word for somebody who's crashed and burned a lot, right? Because in the, in the end, it's going to be about grace. It's not going to be about your performance. It's not going to be what you got done. It's, it's, going to, it's all going to come down to a matter of, you know, if I'm going to set my hope, I'm setting my, Peter says, set your hope fully on grace. And then he says, second imperative, be holy in your whole way of life. And then third imperative, conduct yourselves with fear. And then the fourth, love earnestly. Love is the imperative. And then the fifth imperative is crave or long for or desire pure spiritual milk. So have you marked those? Okay, then let's just let's read through the, the text together. And, uh, and then we'll be on our way. Okay, so the first is set your hope. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And literally, it's, it's gird up the loins of your mind there. That's an old idiom that is found about 27, 28 times in the Old Testament. You know, and so uh, men back in that day wore long robes with a belt around the middle of the robe. And if they had to get into action, like they needed to run or they were going to work, then what they do is they would gather up the, the hem of their robe and tuck it into their belt so that it would free their legs so that they could move freely, so they could run. And so as he's, he's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, you know, it's the, a better idiom for us would be roll up the sleeves of your mind because it's about we're about to get to work. We're about to get active and he says, and being, here's the second participle, and being sober-minded. You'll notice that there's an emphasis upon the mind here, being involved in the process. Now, set your hope. There's your imperative. Set your hope, and then you'll see an adverb, fully. It's the word in the Greek, teleos. You remember that word? What does that mean? Teleos. It's the idea of complete. It's the idea of perfection. It's the idea of fullness. You know, when Christ says on the cross, to telestai, he's using the, 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 the root of that same word. It is finished, complete. You know, and, and what Peter is saying is, is set your hope completely and fully, once and for all, drive down a stake on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And grace is unmerited favor, isn't it? 
not what we deserve. You know, uh, mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, but grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And with Christ, you don't just get mercy and forgiveness. You get grace. You get what you never could work for or achieve. You get what you would never deserve. You get grace. So set your hope fully and completely and finally on the grace that is ahead of you. Second imperative, and as obedient children, I'm saying, I think that's interesting that Peter would say it that way because if you're a parent and you want your child to grow up, I'm just saying, um, in a healthy kind of way, you don't berate your child and say, stupid, you idiot, do you? You know what I'm saying? It's not likely that, they, that these, uh, <laughs> these believers were leading fully obedient lives. But he, in, in a sense, he kind of calls them. You know, he kind of implants in them the good thought. As, as obedient children, he's affirming, he's encouraging them. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ign- ignorance. But as he who called you is holy now also you be holy and the tense of the verb there is you be becoming holy it's an active present tense you be becoming holy in all of your conduct since it is written because your father in heaven is holy so you should also be holy it's an awful lot it's an awful lot easier for a child to follow in the footsteps of a parent who lives a godly and obedient life right saying when god the father says you be holy because i am holy that holds up doesn't it <laughs> you know yeah i mean that is the cha- biggest challenge for us as a parent is to model what we want our child to actually do that our lives actually are consistent with what we say. And in, that, in the case of God the Father, it's always consistent. Be holy, for I am holy. And the word holy means to be set apart. That, that made me think this week. And I, I got into a lengthy di- a conversation with my spiritual director this week, with, with Dr. Roy. Because he had to remind me of what I was set apart from. I have a sense that I know what I'm, I'm set apart for God, to, you know, for His purpose and for His will. I'm set apart for Him. But Roy reminded me that you are set apart from legalism and keeping man-made kind of rules. In verse 18, in verse 18, Paul says this, I mean, Peter says this, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. When you read that in the original Greek text, it says, you know, you were rescued from the futility of following the tradition of the fathers. And that's a catchphrase in the New Testament. For all the incredible legalistic rules that were, you know, that were added 
You know what I'm saying? To, to, so, so that if someone was going to be righteous, they had to be an incredible rule keeper. Now, here's my problem. You know, growing up in my family, you know, being the good son, because I had a, you know, I had a brother that was drug addicted, you know, I'm just saying in trouble and in trouble with the law and did prison time. And, and so, man, I was the good son, right? over here. I was going to try to not break my parents' heart and get everything right. And the unfortunate thing is the unfortunate thing is that I equated holiness with rule keeping. Thank God, <clears throat> my spiritual director picked me up, you know, by the collar and went this week to remind me. The holiness is not about rule keeping. I do think about two things. It's about living clean and uncluttered. And, I, and here's where I get that from. You know, the, the Lord reminded me of, of uh, an experience several years ago when we were in Chiapas and we were installing water filters, water filtration systems in people's homes in a little town called Nuevo Virginia, New Virginia, okay? And, uh, and we were going home to home installing these, uh, these little water filter systems. And I walked into these, and I'm talking about these very simple. I mean, they were just... You know, they were, they, was, uh, they were just board slat homes. I mean, just slats with no insulation and cracks. And, and sometimes they were dirt floors, and sometimes they, sometimes they had wooden slats. They had, a, you know, a, some cinder blocks, and they, kind of, they, and they put some frame on top of that, so they had, wooden, had a wooden floor there. But most of them were, were small and very simple. But I was amazed at home after home when I walked in how the ladies... It taken took so much pride in those little shacks. They were always well swept. You know they slept on top of blankets on the floor, but the, the, the blankets were always neatly folded in one spot over in the corner of the house with the pillows topped on top of them, and the dishes were washed. And, 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 and trust me, there was not two dishes that matched each other. There was China, and there was Melmac, and I mean, it was just, you know, and the coffee cups, there were four, maybe five different colored coffee cups in different shapes and sizes, but they were all clean, and they were all washed, and they were all up on the, you know, they were up on a little shelf, and the, and the, in the, in the, in the little uh, open fire, you know, things were just, I was so, I was just overwhelmed with how neat, for having next to nothing, how neat those homes were, how clean they were. And how simple the lifestyle, they were uncluttered. And, and, and this week when I was thinking and praying about what does it mean, Lord, to be holy, the, the Lord Jesus took me back to Chiapas and popped me down in one of those homes. And I looked around and I went, yeah. It's, it's not about, you know, how beautiful, you know, everything is. Because we're all at different kinds of places and stations in life and, you know, socioeconomic stuff. But is your life, is, is your, your life clean? Is it uncluttered enough that, you know, that you really have time to fulfill the purpose of God for your life? You know what I'm saying? You don't have so many layers of other stuff, you know, that, that just push God into the margin of your life. And, I mean, a holy life is I'm set apart for Him. Is, it, is that I, I seek to keep my life 
clean, and that, that's, that's, that's not on my doing it, but, but for me, it's just simply, for me, simply, it's just be, being before Jesus every morning, or, and, you know, or before I go to bed at night, and just, and just reviewing the day, and say, Lord, is there any place today where I, where I stepped out of bounds, where I blew it, you know, because I want to be clean, I just want to agree with you, you know what I'm saying? Because I can't, I, you know, because Christ, Christ already died for it, and I can't make it better, but I can acknowledge it to you, Father, that I, I want to keep my life clean before you, and I, and I want to keep it uncluttered enough that I've got time that you can interrupt me anytime you want and use me. Next phrase. And if... And this is a first-class conditional sentence, so it infers the idea. And since you call on him as father, you see, it's the, rela- the language is strongly relational here. You know, you call him in father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves, here's the third imperative, with fear. Now, does that mean that I just walk around, you know, like scared to death? Or does that mean that I live my life with a sense of awe and worship and a desire to honor. Yeah, that's what it means. To fear God means that I desire to honor Him, to worship Him, that I hold Him in deep respect and in awe because He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. How do you practice that? Daily. You know what I'm saying? One of the ways we practice it in the weekend is we come here and we worship. We do. We open our hearts up and we worship. Okay, so now all right, now go to verse 22, right? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, and that's the word Philadelphia there, phileo kind of love, for, with sincere phileo love. Now he says, here's the imperative, love agape one another sacrificial love, love, I love you, period, love that doesn't pull back, I love you, period, kind of love, since you've been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, now he's going to talk about the word here, you know, in the next couple of sentences, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. And the grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and and all slander. Be putting those things away. Those are participial phrases there. And then like newborn infants, here's the imperative, long for or crave pure spiritual milk. And the force of the verb there is, you know, don't ever stop craving that milk, that, the Word of God in your life. Because some of us think, well, you know, I don't want to just hang around in the milk of the Word. I want to get into the meat of the Word. That's, that's not what... Peter's trying to say here. He's saying is the thing that, you know, that you ought to crave and long for is just a steady intake that you nourish your soul with the word of God. Okay, and I need to close. Okay, so go backwards. 
I want you to go back to verse 18. In the midst of these five imperatives, as the, as the gospel writers and as Peter and Paul often do, they begin to reflect on who Christ is right in the midst of it. So he's given us a structure you know, out of which to build and you know, to grow our lives in Christ. He gives us a structure for that in these five imperatives. But he, he goes back to the foundation to rest on the foundation of what Christ has done. And, and this happens often in Scripture, and that's what those four verses are. There are three things about Jesus that he says here, okay? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is... He is referring to Jesus as the Passover lamb. In the Exodus, the lamb that was slain, unblemished lamb slain, and its blood was smeared upon the doorposts, you know, uh, on the sides and over, you know, the, the top of the doorposts so that death would pass over the children of God. So he's referring to Jesus as the Passover lamb without blemish that was, that was slain, whose life was given for us in ransom for us. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And so what Peter is saying there is that this wasn't just a you know, plan B, that God looked down at creation and went, oh my goodness, things are out of control and chaos. And look at, oh, they're, oh they've, they've really messed up. I better come up with a plan. What Peter is saying, he had the plan before the foundations of the earth. It was the plan to send Jesus before the foundations of the earth. This was the lamb that was slain, as Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says, before the foundations of the earth. made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope, your faith and hope are in God. He's resurrected. He's been resurrected, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's in glory. Wow. So you have a choice. Pretty simple. The choice is, will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and begin following him? You want to be a disciple? You want to be a follower? I mean, you, you want to experience the fullness of salvation, not just justification, so I get to go to heaven when I die. But I'm just saying, but sanctification, actually growing up like the father, like any of us as a parent would want our children to go. You want to, you want to grow up? That one day when you see him at his coming and you share in his glory, it's all one continuous kind of deal. Like we are working out our salvation with awe and respect and honor. Here's your chance. And Peter's giving you five imperatives to guide you. Let's pray.